0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in stand with me and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As we continue our study through the book of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 1, let's read the chapter together. Paul says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness "'of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, "'namely, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, "'and your zeal has stirred up most of them. "'But I have sent the brethren "'in order that our boasting about you "'may not be made empty in this case, "'so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. "'Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me "'and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, "'will be put to shame by this confidence.' So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully." Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to, to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You may be seated. Let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where someone that you know might have had great intentions about something, but they lacked the follow-through? You're like, yes, I'm sitting next to them. (laughs) If you're not careful (laughs) in that type of situation, it could be frustrating, right? Right? You can find yourself super just annoyed and bugged and frustrated with that person. You said you were going to do this, but you haven't done it yet. But what if we could encourage that person in our life in a way that encourages them to follow through on their good intentions without nagging them? (laughs) Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 9 is really a continuation of what he was writing in chapter 8. Because two weeks ago, week before the church in the park, we looked at chapter 8. And Paul began to encourage the believers in Corinth to follow through on a commitment that they had previously made. You guys remember that? Remember that, that there was a famine, there was a persecution happening at the mother church in Jerusalem, right? The sending church, they were suffering. They were under a great financial strain. They were just going through a hard, difficult time. And so Paul, just the great wise guy that he was, he saw this as a great opportunity for the Gentile Christians in Macedonia to come alongside and to encourage the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And so Paul reached out to these Gentile churches, asking them, hey, would you receive this special offering that we can come and bring it to those struggling and suffering in Jerusalem? And Corinth, which is in ancient Greece, was a wealthy church. It was in a wealthy area. They were the first church to respond to this request. And they responded with this resounding, yes, like we're on it. We want to help out. But we learned as time went on, 1 Corinthians tells us sin got in the way, right? And then this desire got put on hold. And now through a series of letters, through a series of visits, the Corinthians finally repented. And now Paul was seeking to see them get back to this gracious work to complete this offering. And so Paul is writing to them here to encourage them to follow through on their commitment. And in chapter 8, we saw three ways that he sought to encourage them. If you were here, you remember. Number one was he used uh, the Macedonians as an example. Now, the Macedonians weren't rich like the Corinthians. They were poor. But they themselves gave in hard times, we saw. They gave generously. They gave enthusiastically. They had good motives behind their giving. We also saw that Paul encouraged them to abound in this gracious work, this grace of of giving. That is, God doesn't need your money, but he invites us to partner with him with what he's doing in the church and in the world. And then the third way that he sought to encourage the Corinthians was saying, hey, guys, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And how Jesus gave. Remember Second Corinthians 8, 9, he said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through, oh, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, remember, Paul was telling them, hey, guys, don't forget that the one who created everything, right? The creator of the heavens and the earth, he laid it all down and entered into total poverty. Why? So that you and I can become rich towards the things of God. And here in chapter 9, he's going to continue to encourage them. In the first five verses, we're going to see how Paul encourages a church Who might have had good intentions, but they got stuck in the follow-through. And the first thing I want you to notice, if you're taking notes, write this down. Paul gives them the benefit of the doubt. I love this. This is a great way to encourage people who are just getting stuck. Look at verse 1 with me one more time. He says, For it is is superfluous, that literally means not necessary, (laughs) for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that aki has prepared since last year. They've been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul here is believing that this church still wants to help in this need. He's believing the best in them. He's assuming the best, like there must have been, you know, a, a, a legit reason for their delay and follow through. So again, he's giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, it's the chapter on love when Paul would write to them. He says, love is patient and kind, right? But he goes on to say, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is what Paul is doing here with the Corinthians, And this is what that kind of love looks like. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. Let me ask you this morning, what is your natural tendency in dealing with others? Do you naturally think the best or do you naturally think the worst of others? And only you can answer that. And I think it's God's word to all of us this morning is to seek to grow as a people who would think the best of one another, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would always give one another the benefit of the doubt. And so Paul is thinking the best about them. He says, I know your willingness. I boasted about your willingness and I'm believing that hasn't changed. Secondly, we see that he tells them how others have been encouraged. He says, and your zeal, in verse two, has stirred up most of them. Though those words stirred up means to excite, to stimulate, to provoke, to cause someone to react in a way that suggests like acceptance of a challenge. And Paul says, your zeal, Corinth, has done that. You know, isn't it interesting how zeal can have this contagious effect on the church? And I think of it this way I don't know if you've been around, bef- like, if this, if. If you've experienced this before, where somebody in the church is kind of getting fired up about something, it could be a missionary, could be a church planner, could just be someone the Lord just stirring their hearts, and they begin to share, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh! Like that sounds amazing!" Um, I've had many friends in the last few years go out and plant churches all over the country, and as I watched them, um, I've just There's a part of me over the years that felt like, man, I want to be a part of that, right? I'm like, I'm stirred up. I want to be a part of that. Have you ever heard of FOMO? It's fear of missing out. I have that in like great lengths, right? Like I have it big time. I'm like, I want to be a part of that. Like my buddy just planted a church like in the Phoenix area and they're actually launching next Sunday and already the Holy Spirit is pouring out and people are getting saved. They have 500 people Um, right now. They've been doing kind of like once a month gatherings. It's just incredible, like what what the Lord is doing. And I'm like, there's part of me that's like, oh man, like if I wasn't here, I'd want to be there and I don't want to miss out on that thing. right? And that was the Corinthians. Their zeal was contagious. And he's seeking to encourage the believers in Corinth by using how their zeal has affected others. Like, you guys are doing good. And then thirdly, he sends men ahead to get them ready. Look at verse 3. He says, but I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared, verse four, otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. This idea is that we would be embarrassed of this confident boasting. Like, I, as Paul, like, would be embarrassed. You guys would be embarrassed, verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. So because Paul was giving them the benefit of the doubt that they wanted to still help, he says, I'm going to send a team in advance to come and help you. Because Paul realized it would be embarrassing for them and for him if they were not ready. If he showed up and they weren't ready to give. And so he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you with a plan here. I love that. I don't want to catch you off guard. When When I was younger... There was times where my parents would, would leave me home alone or me and my sister home alone. And they were like, hey, we're going to run some errands. We'll be back in a little bit. Hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. I need you to do some chores. I need you to do the dishes or clean the living room or whatever. And, and as time went on, maybe 20, 30, 45 minutes goes on and goes by. And all of a sudden, I hear the garage door opening. <laughs> Uh (laughs) uh-oh. No, like, where's the heads up? And I used to think, like, a little heads up would be nice, you know, like, (laughs) even though I was the procrastinator, right? Now, as a parent, I've kind of changed my ways. I could have, you know, been like my parents where I just came home unannounced. But when Mary and I do the same thing, we now, I now call the kids on our way home, Remember what we asked you to do. Is the living room clean? My kids are blessed, okay? Right? Why? (laughs) So that they're not caught off guard. Some of you are like, no, like, I want to catch them off guard. Me? Like, I'm saving myself from frustration, (laughs) right? (laughs) But that's the idea here. Paul's saying, I'm not just calling ahead, right? Right? But I'm actually going to send guys ahead. So it's like, man, my kids would really love that. Like, I'm not just calling you. I'm going to send, like, the cleaners to come help you, right? Like, to help you guys do the dishes. That's never going to happen. But, like, (laughs) but I'm going to help you get ready to get things together so that when the team shows up and that time to collect the offering happens, they won't catch you off guard. But you're going to be, but they're going to be blessed because you're ready to give, and so we see this beautiful picture that Paul lays out here on how to help someone who's maybe feeling stuck. And I'm so grateful for those people in my life. when I'm just like, I have all of the ambitious, all, ambition and all of the heart and all of the zeal, but I'm like, what's the first step? <laughs> you know, and, and I love that people give the benefit of the doubt that there's a reason behind their delay. Paul says, He says, hey, but people have been encouraged by you. There's that seeking to encourage them. And then a a great way to help someone is is to do what you physically can to get them unstuck, right? To send people ahead to get them ready. You see, it's easy to tell someone, just get with it. Come on, buck up, hurry up, do this, do that. You know, it's easy. But it makes all of the difference in the world when you get down in the trenches with them and say, how can I help you, right? Right? How can I get involved with you? How can I encourage you in this? And that's what we see Paul doing here. He's got a great heart for the Corinthians. And now in verse six, he's gonna teach them about the principle of sowing and reaping. Look at verse six. He says, now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And Paul is using this Principle here in regards to the offering that they were going to give. He says, He who sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. In other words, you can't sow just a little and expect a whole harvest, right? You can't sow a little bit and expect an entire field to grow. And there's a spiritual principle here that Paul is teaching them concerning sowing and reaping. And a couple observations that I want to make, and they'll be on the screen, when it comes to sowing and reaping, number one, is that you reap after the same kind, okay? I want you to know that. When it comes to sowing and reaping, you reap after the same kind. That is, if I plant an apple seed, I'm not going to get an avocado, right, tree to to grow, right? I mean, that would be amazing, but like, no, like you reap after the same kind. If I sow wheat, I'm not going to expect corn to grow, and this is a principle that applies in all of our walks with Christ. Like I, we, I, I encounter Christians all the time who they, they wonder why their walk with Jesus is anemic, right? And part of the reason, maybe that's you this morning, you're like, why is my walk with Jesus so stale and stagnant? Part of the reason is that they're sowing sparingly in the relationship with Christ, They're sowing, they're spending too much time involved in other things, less important things. They're not sowing into their walk with Jesus. And it also speaks of what they're sowing. They might not be sowing the right things. I think of what Paul would say in Galatians 6, do not be deceived, he says. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul's saying if you sow to the Spirit, you invest your life into the things of the Lord, you're going to reap eternal life. You're going to reap good things. The fruit of the Spirit is going to abound in your life. But the opposite is true. If you sow to your flesh you're going to reap corruption. You know, some people want to grow spiritually, but yet they're spending their whole lives sowing to worthless things. Listen, you will not reap a life of spiritual fruit if you are constantly sowing to your flesh. I want you to know that. Some of you, you're sowing to your flesh, you're, you're all about your own happiness and all of these things, and you're expecting to move forward in your relationship with Christ. You're expecting, you're like, man, why, why am I not growing in my knowledge of God's word? It's because you're on your smartphone in the morning instead of in the Bible, right? Like you're sowing to the things of the flesh. You know, this applies not just in our walk with Jesus, but in our marriages. Couples often wonder, why are, why are we struggling in our marriage, you know, I, I've heard it said that marriages are like a garden in two ways, right? In marriage, if you're sowing seeds of neglect and disrespect and distrust, well, guess what? That's what you're going to get. But if you're sowing seeds of love and respect, you're going to re- reap the blessings of that. But another way that marriage is like a garden is that you, if you neglect a garden, what happens? Right? If you neglect your, your spouse and you, you, things start to die and love starts to die and trust dies and joy dies, weeds grow if you neglect it. But if you sow seeds of trust and love and grace in your relationship, you sow bountifully. Guess what? You reap bountifully. It's, this, it's, it's, it's the principle of sowing and reaping. So it's a, applicable in our relationships with the Lord as individuals. It's applicable in our marriage and really in every relationship in our lives. In other words, you get out what you put in. So what are you sowing? In whatever relationship and whatever context that is for you, what are you sowing? Because know that you will reap after its own kind. Secondly, you reap after you've sown. The thing is, you have to sow first. You can't expect a harvest if you don't plant any seeds. A side side note to this, if we're honest, though, um, as followers of Jesus, this can be very difficult because a lot of times it can feel like we're sowing and we're sowing and we're sowing, and it can seem like a long time before we start to see any fruit. And this could be in our marriages where you're like, man, I've been that faithful spouse, and yet my, other, my, my spouse is just not coming around. And this could be in our walk with the Lord even where, where it's like, man, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to church. I'm in my Bible. You know, this could be personally. This could be in our ministries. And we live, and the, the problem is, is we live in a culture where we want everything now, right? Right? We want everything instant. We have fast food, right? We love Chick-fil-A. We're like, we're so grateful that the Clackamas has like two lines that goes through. We're like faster, like Dutch bros. Like I was there this morning. It's like, they get you in, they get you out 45 seconds. Like, give me my caffeine. We love instant everything. Because we all long though for instant harvest, instant fruit in our lives. But listen, church, it doesn't always happen that way. What does a farmer do when he goes out? He plants the seeds, He waters the seeds and then he waits. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 6 9, let us not lose heart, or in other translations, let us not grow weary in doing good. He says, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Sometimes we can be so impatient after the sowing process. Like, but Lord, we did the right thing, and where's the results? Lord, I went to the gym once. Like, where's my six pack, right? Like, <laughs> I, heard, I heard it said, and this is just, I think this is a, a good word. I heard this said, above all, trust in the slow work of God. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we're in a hurry for results, but all the while, God is doing a good, deep, slow work in us so don't be discouraged if fruit doesn't come instantly it might not be in our timing when when the fruit is actually born but we know that we will reap in due time and so you reap after the same kind you reap after you've sown thirdly you reap more than you sow you plant one apple seed but what do you get an apple tree right tons of apples In the spiritual realm, if you sow to the Spirit, listen, God will never be your debtor, never. God will bless you. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So you're always going to reap more than you sow. And this is the principle that Paul is giving here. Corinth, if you sow sparingly, You're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And this reminds me of something the Lord spoke through Malachi the prophet to the people of Israel in Malachi 3. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. He says, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Listen, I want to say this: We don't give to get. That's the false teaching that is so prominent in our culture. That's what the famous prosperity teachers put on people. "Hey, you give 10, God's going to bless it a hundredfold." And they make this, these promises that are nowhere found in Scripture. So church, hear me on this. We don't give just to get but rather we give to the Lord in response to what he's done in our lives. We give to the Lord because we understand that this is part of our privilege. It's one of the ways the Lord allows us to partner with him. But what's interesting to me in Malachi 3.10 is it's such a unique passage because it's the only time in the entire Bible where God challenges his people. He says, test me in this, test me in this. God's basically telling them, you can never outgive me. Never. You can't outgive me in this. Try me in this. Now notice how Paul continues to apply this encouragement to the, the Corinthians about following through in verse 7. He says, each one. So when you test the Lord, try the Lord in this. Each one must do just as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. He says, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul's saying when it comes to this offering, Paul says, what you give is up to you. Like this isn't, we're not talking about tithe. A tithe simply means a tenth, like 10% of what you make, you give back to the Lord. That's a whole other sermon on tithing versus offering, which which is biblical. You're like, well, tithing is a, a part of the law. No, tithing came before the law. But again, that's a different topic for a different day. But this is an offering. This is over and beyond what you would normally give. Paul is saying, whatever God lays on your heart, you see the need, Corinth, You're burdened by the need. Whatever the Lord puts on your heart, give that. Give that. But he says something super important. And that is to make sure, Corinth, that you're not giving out of obligation. That you're not giving out of or or, out of compulsion, right? You're not giving grudgingly. Like, oh no, Pastor Ryan's talking about money again, right? Like, no. Listen, if that's your heart, God would say, don't give. Right, God, God would tell you this morning, if, you're just, if money makes you uncomfortable and giving makes you uncomfortable, God would tell you, don't give. He doesn't need your money. This is his blessing that he gives to us to partner with him. He invites us. This is a, an act of grace. So Paul says, don't give grudgingly. Paul, Paul alluded to this last, in the last chapter when he said, I'm not speaking this as a command right, to give, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. Again, Paul is saying that giving is an indication on where your affections are. But God says, I don't want you to give grudgingly because you feel like you have to, right? So many people give for with different motives and different reasonings. But Paul says at the end of verse 7, he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Now, I think this can be a hard concept for many of us. Because sometimes we tend to view, for honest, our possessions as our own. And this has been communicated to us in the way of the American dream, right? Make money, gain freedom, gain independence, accumulate wealth, accumulate stuff. And even though those things aren't bad in and of themselves, they're not bad. It's not bad to own a home. It's not bad to have a savings account. It's not bad to have nice things. But we need to be careful as the people of God that we don't get into the mindset that everything that we have is really ours. I can't, I can't help but think of a, a popular book series turned movie series. You might have heard it before. It's called The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Anyone? Okay, I wouldn't call myself a fan of this series. This is no way of me endorsing this movie or these books. I'm not a fan of any seven-hour movie. Um, That's what it feels like to me. But Lord of the Rings, if I understood this correctly, my kids read the book and I had to fact check this, is about really one ring, this one ring, the ring of all rings that was made by this dark lord. And he used this ring to rule over people, bringing them into subjection under his oppressive lordship. I think I got that right. And some point, the ring was taken from him, it was lost, a few people were masters over that ring at different times, and the people who ended up possessing the ring ended up becoming super obsessive about this ring, super obsessive. And there's this famous line from Smeagol, and he said, the ring is my own, my precious. Smeagol thought that he ruled over the ring. It's my own. It's my precious. But we see clearly that the ring in the movie, I never read the books, in the movie, that the, ru- the ring really ruled over Smeagol. He thought it was his. He thought he owned it, but really he was the ring's. And I've heard it said about money is that money makes a great servant, but a terrible master. And the thing we don't always realize is that when we think that our money and our possessions belong to us, we're giving them dominion over us. We're giving them control over this and and Satan knows this. He knows where we're weak. He says jokes on you, right? We think we're the master, but our money's like, nope, nice trying. Try again. I am. I'm the master. And if we're honest, a lot of us are tempted to view our money and possessions in this way. It's my money. It's my own. I've earned this. Nobody has a right to touch this or tell me how to spend this. But the truth is, church, nothing is actually ever truly our own. No, 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 Ryan, I worked for this. Listen, who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the mind to to be used in the workplace? Who, Who has sustained your body? Who has created you? Listen, as we saw two weeks ago, all things belong to the Lord. And what we have to realize is that we are simply called to steward, be caretakers of the things that God has given to us, entrusted to us, and to steward them for His glory. And when we have a proper perspective of money and possessions, I believe it causes us to become, as Paul says, cheerful givers. Why? Because it's not even ours. (laughs) I love that Greek word for cheerful here is where we get the English word for, do you guys know this? Hilarious. That's, that's, that's where we get our word for hilarious. Like, God loves a hilarious giver. Like, Lord, this is so awesome that we get to come to church and worship you, but also give. Lord, this is so awesome. I can't wait to sing and, and to study your word. But, Lord, I'm also super excited to give. Like It's that mentality. Let me ask you, why do you think God loves cheerful giving? Why do you lo- think he loves this hilarious heart and giving? It's because it rightly reflects his character. Because he himself is a cheerful giver. He loves to give good gifts to his children. I think of of James 1.17, every good and perfect gift, right? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is where? From where? Above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God himself is a cheerful giver and he calls us, his followers to reflect him in all that we say and do. God wants us to learn to live generously, but also cheerfully. Look at verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, I'm gonna read this verse to you again out of the New Living. I love the way it puts it. It says, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Now, let me say this. Money has never been the issue with the Lord. I want you to know that. I can't say it in more ways. Like he he doesn't, God doesn't need our money. But as I said two weeks ago, the Lord is after our hearts. He's after our hearts. And one of the challenges that people have when it comes to giving, let's just be honest, is fear and anxiety. It's fear and, what, what if an emergency comes up? What if I lose my job? I can't give. What if there's not enough left over for me? What if, what if, what if? You know, worry, worry, worry. And worry can overwhelm us. And the problem is, church, when worry overwhelms us, when anxiety comes with this topic of giving, it's because we're not factoring God into the equation. Because here's the truth, and maybe this is a word for someone today. If hard things happen to you in the future, he will be just as faithful to you tomorrow as he was yesterday, as he is today. Let me just speak that over your life. If hard times, if the job loss comes to you tomorrow, God will be just as faithful to you as he was yesterday. Never forget that. Without God, we would have every reason to be insecure and afraid. But with him, we have no reason to fear or worry about tomorrow. Amen? Jesus sought to emphasize this amazing truth in Matthew 6 when he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But Jesus would tell them, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Verse 10, Paul says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You see, we get seeds and you get them, not to hoard them, right? Not to just store them. If you go to Fred Meyer today and you go and buy some seeds, uh, you don't just put them in the shed, right? For, For ever and ever and ever. No, no, that's not the purpose. You get seeds to plant them. And this is what Paul's saying. Your gifts... Your talents, your time, your resources are like seeds that are not meant to be hoarded. They're meant to be used. The the New Living says, verse 10, this way, it'll be on the screen. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Paul's saying that, that God is the one who provides both the seed to sow and the means by which it grows for a great harvest. The farmers, they take the seed that was given to them, they plant it, they water it, but it's God who ultimately causes the growth. We have, though, as farmers, a responsibility to sow what he's given to us. And God has given to us, some of us, a lot of talent and giftings. How are you sowing that in the ways of Jesus? Like, are you giving that back to him? Some of you, God's given you finances and resources. How are you stewarding those? And when we learn to be faithful in giving, Paul is saying that it produces something in us, and Paul calls it a great harvest of generosity. Now, I want you to notice the further results that Paul gives, but uh, for the sake of time, I want to read the next few verses just from the New Living. I'll put them on the screen for you to follow. I think it'll be a lot easier to understand. He says, and when we take your gifts, that is your offering, to those who need them, they will thank God He says in verse 12, so two good things will result from this ministry of giving. Here's the first one. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. And here's the second one. And they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. I love that. So he's saying is by your generosity, the people's needs, the legit needs will be met. And in it, and in their needs being met, they're going to glorify God because of what you've done. He goes on to say, for your generosity to them. And so all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ, that you're obedient to the gospel, that you're more than just a hearer of the word, but you're a doer. And, and then one of the last things that Paul says in this section is that your hearts will be joined forever together. Look at this in verse 14. He says, and they will pray for you, I love this, with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, this is what happens when you and I live generously from the right heart. When we learn to be stewards of what God has given to us, he says, others are helped. Needs are met. God, though, is glorified. And lastly, your hearts are forever joined together in deep affection with those that you've helped. Like there's a relationship that is is birthed. There's a relationship that is had because of your heart for them. As Josh and the the worship team come, come out and as we close this morning, my prayer for us is that God would create in us as his people, continue to cultivate in us a spirit of generosity, to be good stewards of his resources that he's entrusted to us. But I want to close. You're like, we didn't do verse 15. That's right. Sorry, the lights went down, but we have verse 15. Thanks be to God, it says this, for his indescribable gift. And today, this morning, we're going to close by remembering and celebrating the greatest gift ever given, which is Jesus Christ. The giver of the greatest gift is, of course, God. I think of John three sixteen, the first half. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved and he was motivated by love that he gave Jesus for us. And that powerful and simple expression of the gospel tells us again that because God loved us, he gave Jesus. He gave himself. And it's no wonder that we can respond as Paul says in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I think of Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He did not spare his own son. That Jesus came. That God sent Jesus to do what we could not do. To shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And today we remember Jesus. As we sing, uh, if you were not handed a communion packet, um, as we sing the song, just raise your hand and the ushers will come forward and bring you a communion packet. Just raise it up high so they can see you. But we remember Jesus today, his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and in our place, the one who gave his life so that you and I can have life. That God invested generously when he sent his son. That's how much he loves us. He did not sow sparingly. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.